Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, you've heard a lot already this morning. Do you have the, uh, the patience for just a little more? I believe that God has some stuff that he'd like to say to us. He's put this message on my heart. Uh, to give you full disclosure, the message I want to bring this morning, um, I touched on one of the verses in this text two years ago during the last Sunday of the year, Consecration Sunday, but it was hardly enough to do justice to the text. I really think that um, this is a passage um, whose content needs to be spoken to the church, and I felt a special burden to preach this today. I preached a version of the sermon in Tuba City recently, but as I was preaching it there, I felt a deep, deep desire to preach it here at Harvest, so I'm going to do that this morning. And the title of the message is Giving Jesus the First Place in Everything. Giving Jesus the First Place in Everything. I want to read to you a passage of Scripture, and then I want to just expound on it a little bit here. I'm going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, and uh, even though the NASB is not my usual go-to translation, I think it translates this passage the most beautifully. And so here's what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. I really love the way that that's translated. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell, th- <coughs> excuse me, for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. I don't make any presumption that because you're in this building today, you are some lover of Jesus Christ, a religious fanatic. In fact, the very opposite may be true. You may have walked into this building today knowing in your heart that you're probably the farthest you've ever been away from God. That's okay. We're not going to kick you out or anything. I mean, we want everyone to walk in here exactly as they are. And my hope is that somehow through this message, you will catch a little glimpse of why Jesus is such a big deal to us who are Christians. And I'll ask you a question. What makes Christianity distinctive? In other words, um, if you hear a teaching that's religious in nature, what would make it a distinctively Christian teaching? What makes our religion, if we're Christians, any different from all the other religions of the world? And you can ponder that for a while. Some of the things, you know, people like to talk about a lot is we are people with a certain um, moral or ethical framework. But the truth is there really isn't any religion that teaches that adultery is virtuous and that it's good to murder people and steal things that don't belong to you. I mean, the basic ethics contained in the Ten Commandments are in some ways pretty universal across religious systems. So we don't have a monopoly on righteous living in the sense that we're the only people who believe we should act rightly and not wrongly, right? 
Are we the only religion that has a holy book? Now, I believe that ours is the holy book. That's my statement of faith. I believe that the Bible contains real truth. But are we the only ones who claim that our authority comes from a book? Of course not. Just about every religion has a book that they revere as containing the sum of all their core teachings. And so my question to you is, what makes Christianity distinctive? If I preach, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not cheat uh, on your spouse, there is nothing distinctly Christian about that. Apart from this, the one thing that makes us distinctive is the person of Jesus Christ. He is, in his person, the only thing that makes Christianity truly distinctive and all the nuances and the specifics that flow out of who he is and what he taught. But apart from Jesus... There is nothing distinctive about Christianity per se. And so everything builds upon and everything flows out of Jesus Christ as the one figure who defines this entire movement. And that that stands to reason then that if your personal faith does not include a life-giving, genuine relationship with Jesus, a real connection with him, then you're missing something tremendous. In fact, it's like being a blind person and going to the movies and saying, I love the way this movie sounds. And you're thinking, man, if you could see the movie, you don't know what you're missing out on. Even worse, it'd be like going to the movies thinking that all they do is sell popcorn there and you never make it out of the lobby. What a complete robbery of an experience that would be. And if you are in the church and you're like, man, I have to give 10% of my what? And you're giving money to the church. You're donating time to the church. You're trying not to have sex with your girlfriend because the church tells you not to. And you're doing all these things. And yet you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then you're missing the whole show. And it's no wonder then that this becomes very wearying to you. And you look at people who seem really engaged with all of this. And you can't quite figure out why everyone's so excited about it. The thing that we're excited about is Jesus himself. And when you have Jesus, you understand this faith. And so this message, I believe there's no passage of scripture that more beautifully extols, holds up Jesus Christ, praises him than Colossians chapter 1. And if you read Colossians 1, you'll find it is one of the most beautiful expressions of how central a figure Jesus Christ is, how indispensable he is, to understanding what it means to be a Christian. I especially love verse 18, the way that the New American Standard Bible translates it from the Greek. It says, so that he, Jesus himself, will come to have first place in everything. I think that's the real journey of the Christian faith. Having been saved by faith, the rest of the journey is about Jesus being given the first place in everything in our lives. I want to unpack what that means, practically speaking, that Jesus should have the first place in everything in our lives. I think the first thing that means is that Jesus would be our first priority. Look what it says in verses 15 through 17. And I, just in case you'd miss it, I, I highlighted the important stuff in red, okay? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I know not everyone in here is Asian, but Asian people, you've got to give me a little, a, a little feedback here. Does it mean anything if you're Asian to be firstborn in your family? How many of you guys are firstborn? Just raise your hand. 
Okay, I'm firstborn too. I come from a weird Asian family. I got nothing extra for being firstborn. But a lot of you, you get something extra. The firstborn gets a lot of perks. They get to yell at their younger siblings. They get to tell them what to do. They get to be in charge when mom and dad aren't home. They get the best portions of meat at dinner sometimes. It's goofy. And if you're the firstborn son in an Asian family, you are the king, man. Next to daddy, you get everything good. It doesn't really make any sense. If you're oriented around justice, that's just, there's something inherently unfair about that. But Asian families don't care about fair or unfair. It is what it is. You get priority. You get to be first in line because you were firstborn. And this is actually, Christianity was born out of a Far Eastern culture that has more similarities to Asian culture than to American culture. And so when, when Paul is writing that Jesus is firstborn of all creation, it carried with it all the attendant consequences of that. Everyone understood what that meant. And then at the end, verse 17, it says, he is before all things. That's not just a temporal statement, meaning he existed before everything, but it also is a statement of priority. What it's saying here is this. Christianity will never make sense to people unless it's entirely built around Jesus being the first priority in every facet of life. If he doesn't come first, then Christianity becomes a very burdensome and tiresome affair. One where you're constantly at war within yourself. Why do I have to do this? Do you find yourself asking that question a lot? Why can't I have sex with people I want to have? Why can't I keep more of my money? Why can't I punch that guy in the face when he's done such an irritating thing to me? Why can't I use profane words when life becomes profane? Do you know how many times I hear and feel swear words welling up in my throat and I push them down because life brings that out of us. And so the question is, why can't we? And if you don't have a good answer to that question, Christianity is going to frustrate you because it feels like a bunch of rules with no real motivation. If Jesus isn't first, then this whole lifestyle in the church is incomprehensible and at times actually pretty stupid. Isn't that true? Guys, how many of you, just for the heck of it, blow four or five months' income on a piece of jewelry? How many of you guys do that just because you love spending all your money on shiny little things? Right. Guys don't like doing They'd rather buy the 101-inch TV from Samsung, right? Wouldn't you much rather have a 101-inch TV than a ring? Yeah, amen. That's right, guys. Don't you? You guys are such cows. You're like, she's sitting right here. I can't. You know what you'd really rather have. Why do we buy the ring? It is incomprehensible behavior unless you look at the girl sitting next to you and you go, oh, oh, okay, all right, my bad. All right, you can buy the ring because you've got a, this wonderful girl next to you and you want to win her heart. You want to invite her into a marriage relationship. Now I understand why you would blow that much money on a stupid piece of jewelry that you as a man would never in your right mind purchase. But now I get it because I understand why. She gets priority here over your good sense of budgeting and your desire to go into Best Buy every day. She takes priority over that because in the moment, right now, she comes first. We all understand that. It's actually a very simple concept, giving Jesus priority. It means that his stuff, his desires, his dreams come before ours. And the beautiful thing about it is, if that happens, stuff works. If it doesn't, it just doesn't work. There are a lot of people who get married for goofy reasons, love not being one of them. 
And they have a very strange experience. The marriage never quite takes off. It doesn't work because it wasn't built on the foundation that it needs to be. You know, uh, about a month ago, we had our congregational retreat, and our guest speaker was Bill Hogg. He's my good friend. And so after the retreat was over, he spent two more days in Chicago, and we just hung out. We ate like pigs. We drove around, did some shopping. And for those two days, I was his slave, basically. I was his chauffeur. I picked up the tab for all his meals. I was his host, and he was my guest of honor. I picked him up at his hotel in the morning. I pretty much said, what do you want to do today, Bill? What, do you want, what can I take you to see in Chicago? Now, that's really what it means to give someone else priority. Believe me when I tell you, I had a thousand other things I needed to be doing with those two days. But this is a good friend. He just served our church, and he was in from Western Canada. I don't get to see him every day, and so I was glad to give him priority. I I didn't say to him things like, hey, after lunch, listen, do you mind if I just drop over at the library and return my kids' books and then do all the... It wasn't about me that day. The whole day was oriented around what he'd like to do in the two days he was in Chicago. And that begins to give us a sense of what it means. It means to move aside and let somebody else take precedence over us. That's not something we do very naturally, is it? I mean, even as I'm saying it, the truth is, I don't like moving aside for too many people. And for some people, if I gain something from that relationship, I'll gladly move aside. I'll scratch your back. You'll scratch mine. Fine, right? But the truth is that there aren't a lot of people we would gladly move aside for. We really like us, don't we? I mean, raise your hand if you really like you. Do you love yourself? That's why Jesus makes the appeal. Love others the way you love yourself because no one needs to tell you to love. You love yourself. You want to know what I want you to do? Love other people the way you love you. And that's so difficult to do, isn't it? Instead of giving Jesus priority, you know, the way we, like, how many of you guys are gentlemen? You open doors for ladies? They don't all like that, but you still got to do it, right? I, I can't stand when I'm walking to the mall and somebody will open the door just a sliver enough to slip through, and then they'll just, I'm like, uh, excuse me, people walking in behind you. Couldn't you glance back and just hold it open? Uh, we're supposed to let people through. In traffic, we're supposed to say, hey, why don't you come on in? That's what people should do. But it's not what we do. And when we are in relationship with Christ, instead of submitting, giving him priority, what we often do is we negotiate with him. And right there, it reveals our true theology. When you negotiate with God, what you're saying is God is not this almighty being. He's this guy that I'm going to go to the negotiating table with, and we're going to compromise. I have some bargaining chips. He's got some stuff I want. I got some stuff he wants. We're going to come to a mutual agreement. Do you realize the lunacy of coming to the table with God and believing you have any bargaining chips at all? All right, think about it. That's like me coming to Microsoft and going, listen, I don't like your software. I want you to make some changes. Let's just sit down at the table. I got to talk to you. Uh, I would like to see Microsoft just go away, of course. But, you know, I mean, what, what do I have in my hand that would make them want to listen to me? Nothing. Nothing at all. There is such a power disparity that to think I can negotiate is foolishness. Here's how we attempt to negotiate with God. There's two main strategies I've seen in the church. One kind of person nickels and dimes God on everything. 
They're like those annoying children. No matter what you ask them to do, they got to say something back to you. It's time for bed. Uh, five more minutes. Every single night. There's not one night where their kid just goes, oh, it's bedtime, mother. Thank you. And they just go right to bed. It's every single night, every single thing. Eat your veggies. Can I just eat three out of the five? Nickel and diming everything. And that's the way some of us are with God. No matter what he said, we're trying to make it livable, palatable. I don't like the way that reads. Can we just kind of come to an agreement where maybe I'll try to do this and will you be okay with that? We're trying to find the lowest minimum boundary that God will not smite us or something. How do I keep you happy but not ecstatic? Satisfied enough to stay in the game. There's another strategy I've seen for negotiating. Those are the people who make massive concessions to God in one area so that they don't have to make any ground, give any ground in another. So some people might say something like this. I will give you joyfully 10% of my money because, frankly, I got a lot of money. I don't really care that much about money, but don't you ever mess with my love life, God. That's all my personal business. I've given you money. Don't you mess with my love life. I've given you this. Don't mess with that. And so what we're doing is saying, I'm going to look really, really super spiritual in one area of my life so that you don't ever get to give me your opinion about another area of my life. Protecting little rooms that we have in our lives. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Does that reflect in any ways the way you're prone to negotiate with God? I see that a lot in the church. But something happens in a person's life when they take the priority of Jesus Christ very seriously. You guys know that we go to visit Tuba City every year as a church. We bring a large team, and we try to bless that city. I wonder if you, if you fully know the story of Peter and Joanne's life. They're the, the, the couple. They're both medical doctors. They used to go to this church, and they moved out to Tuba City and began working as missionaries in one of the most depressed and depressing communities in America. Before moving out there, they were both very, very well-to-do folks. They moved to Northern Virginia. It's one of the wealthiest areas of the United States. Peter had just gotten a partnership in one of the most lucrative medical practices in the area. He was in the money, man. And when you have medical school debts, you need to make a lot of money just to put food on the table the first couple years. So he was on a a path to success. He was going to have a nice home and a a huge income, power and prestige in the community. And everything was exactly what they wanted. It was what they'd worked all their lives for. And then one fateful day, driving from church back to uh, one of their, their parents' homes, they happened to glance at the bulletin. And in their church, in their bulletin, there is this little missions focus every week where they feature some missionary they're partnering with somewhere in the world. And that week, the feature happened to be about some people who are doing missions work among the Native Americans. They said, well, that's interesting. That would be a pretty interesting way to spend your life, don't you think? And what they weren't really openly saying was there was this kind of existential crisis going on in them where they were sitting at the top, the pinnacle of success, but there still was this feeling that this is not our whole life story, that there's something more that God might want, but it takes a lot of courage to open that question because those are things that cannot be unsaid once they're put out there on the table. Well, they looked at it, and then this thing started to snowball, and they felt like, man, God might want us to explore this. Maybe we're not supposed to be in the seat of wealth in northern Virginia. Maybe we're supposed to be out there serving. And so they got on the phone, and like a month later, they were on a plane flying out to the reservation. Now, in honesty, Peter said, 
in his testimony, he kept picturing uh, dances with wolves and rolling hills and meadows and herds of bison and all that and cowboys with rifles. But when you get to Tuba City, it's just this gigantic trailer park in a dust bowl. That's what it is. And it's depressing having these glorious romantic visions and then seeing the harsh reality of where you might be living. But when you know everything they walked away from, it's amazing how happy they are today. What they said was that that whole journey began with one fateful question, God, where would you like to have us? That's a huge question. Because everybody knows where they'd like to be. I mean, I, you know, regularly when I meet people, I say, hey, man, where would you like to be in a year or two years? What's your dream? If money were no object, there were no real barriers, what would your life look like? And everyone loves spending an hour or two telling that story at Denny's late at night, don't we? I mean, just we have all kinds of fantasies about, oh, man, I would love to be running my own ad agency and then actually racing Formula One cars as a hobby. And, you know, everyone wants to be Tony Stark if you're a guy, right? That's our dream. That's an interesting question, but the foundational question, the dangerous one is, Jesus, where would you like to have me? If you really believe that he orders the universe, if he is God, isn't that a question that as a responsible spiritual being, at some point in our lives, we absolutely have to ask with honesty? That's a question a lot of people ask, but they don't have the faith or courage to listen for the answer. That is a very dangerous question. But I'm asking you, have you ever asked that question of Jesus? I mean, is the life I'm living right now the life I'm supposed to be living? I know it's the life I'm able to be living. I've worked very hard to to set up this great life for myself. But is it really, if Jesus could control me like an RC car, would he have steered me to this very place? Because if Jesus is God, then at some point in our lives, we cannot dodge that question forever. Does he have the priority, the first place in everything? Crazy things happen when you really ask that question. You may not end up as rich or secure or safe as you'd like to be, but life will never be boring, and you're likely not to have very many regrets. I've known a handful of people who ask that question with great courage, and when we get together and talk, they don't regret that decision. It's the most important question they ever asked. Let me give you a second thing here, that Jesus would be our first motivation. It says that all things have been created through him and for him. And when this is acknowledged in the universe, when it's acknowledged that everything that exists first exists for him and then residually for all of us. If that's first acknowledged, then it says in him, everything will be held together. Marriages, families, corporations, churches, neighborhoods. Everything holds together in Christ. So where he is acknowledged as the glue, things work. They don't drift apart. They don't fight very much. That's the promise when Jesus Christ is the key motivation. If you hang around a movie set at all, some of you have been pretty close to movie sets, I know. Um, One one thing you're going to hear actors say a lot is, what's my motivation? Even in a blockbuster film with a multi-million dollar budget, props, computer graphics, costumes, period pieces, all that, everything's there, and yet without the actor being clear on their motivation, the scene will not be believable. 
I think that acting is a form of mental illness that's very well controlled because you have to, for a moment, be another person in a very different situation so that the fake tears look and feel real to the audience. In order to get there, the best actors actually convince themselves, my sister has just died. I mean, not just in this film, but in my life. That's when the believable stuff comes out. Because what we're saying is life looks fake unless we are in touch with the real motivations. And the truth is everyone is at every moment motivated by something. You can't claim a motivation other than what's really there because motives express themselves in real life. It is what makes us seem consistent as beings. It's what makes you look real and believable is that your motives and your actual life correlate very well. You can't say things like, you know, I'm totally about giving back when really you're not. And a lot of celebrities say that and then you you listen to what they're actually giving away and they're giving nothing away. You can, in your head, be all about one thing, but in your life, be all about something else. And so you've got to be real clear on this. What is your real motivation? Some of you are serving God with a really, really true motivation. You love Jesus, and it's not easy to serve, is it? I know that it's a pretty thankless thing sometimes to haul all that food from your car. The food ministry team does an amazing job every week. And I don't know how much recognition you get. I know it can't be easy. It can't be easy to be the one person in a vest out in the parking lot, just lonely out there Sunday morning. Come on over this way. And nobody ever thanks you. They just kind of stare at you as they drive by. You know, some of you are serving God in a very costly way, but your motive is right on. You're not doing this for for applause. You're not doing this because people pay you. But because somewhere deep down in your heart, you love Jesus enough that you do this if nobody noticed. You're doing it for him. And the reward in that is so clear to you that it gets you through a lot of the hard times. But if you lose that motivation, stuff starts to fall apart. You know, recently, Bobby, who led our praise this morning, um, he's also an intern at our church. He was working on something for his Chicago Public School board exam or something. It was a video project, and there was a glitch at the last couple minutes of that video, and he just happened to casually walk over to my office and say, hey, do you know anything about this? Can you help me fix this? And if you know me at all, once you've introduced a problem like that to me, I'm obsessive. I cannot rest until I fix that problem. I think maybe I might have missed my call as an engineer, except that I'm not good at math, but... I couldn't let this thing go, and so I started taking over, and I spent the next six and a half hours of my workday tackling. I spent like $100 on software just trying to figure out, can I do a backdoor fix around this? And I couldn't fix this stupid thing. And I was so mad at the end of the day that I couldn't fix it. But about three or four hours into this, Bobby came into my office, and he tapped me on my shoulder and basically said, this really stopped being about helping me a long time ago, didn't it? Somewhere along the way, I don't even need to exist. You need to fix this for whatever reason, your own self-validation, just the challenge of tackling a problem. But this is no longer about me. And he was absolutely right. I could care less about Bob at that moment. He could just be gone. I'd still be working out the next day if it wasn't due that evening. And do you realize how easy it is to look really committed, really busy, really dedicated, but for entirely the wrong reason? That's something I learned that day. 
And so we should never make any presumption that because I'm active or I'm leading or I'm even a pastor by title, that somehow my motives are okay because my title ensures it. Excuse me, but I am the lead pastor of Harvest Community Church. Of course my motivation is always Jesus. There's no way that's always true. It's a daily gut check, something that I need to wrestle through every day. What is my first motivation? And there are a lot of days where I'll be honest with you, I'm not convinced that I'm doing it all for Jesus. Sometimes I'm talking to a person and my entire desire is to fix them, to show how clever I am. You came to this office broken, I fixed you. Don't you dare cry when you're leaving. You're done. And you go tell people how much I helped you. It's not every day. But I'd be a liar if I didn't say that that wicked thought lurks in the back of my heart on some days. It's probably like that for you too. And if we don't have Jesus clearly set as our first motivation in life, well, listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 7. Not what it says, what Jesus himself says. One of the most haunting passages of Scripture, I think, in the whole Bible, occurs during the Sermon on the Mount. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I just need to get a a spiritual inventory of our church. Raise your hand if you've ever spoken for God, prophesied, knowing things supernaturally that no human being could have ever told you. Now, raise your hand if you've ever cast out a demon. Just, and just the demons fly. Raise your hand if you've ever exercised the demon. Okay, then. Raise your hand if you've ever performed a legitimate miracle. One that the people out of the Vatican would legitimize. Oh, yeah, that's definitely a miracle. He raised the dead. Caused people who were blind to see. Anyone? I'm not just trying to be a smart aleck. I'm really asking, is there any? So, Basically, Jesus is rebuking people who would be spiritual giants among us. We look up to the ankles of people like that going, dang, you cast out demons, you prophesy, you perform miracles. If they were in our church, they'd be made leaders overnight. Oh, no, we got to put this guy up right on top. He hears God, man. He says stuff like, the Lord told me that you last night were on this particular website and you clicked on the, and like, oh, how could you possibly know that? You need to be a leader in this church. We would presume that, wouldn't we? And yet Jesus looks at their entire body of work, and instead of accolades, he deems the whole thing worthless. And why? What neutralizes all of that spiritual work, as impressive as it is? He says clearly, look, you may have done a lot of stuff throwing my name around, but the problem with your whole work, your whole body of work, is I never knew you. This was always meant to be a relationship, and you were off busy doing all kinds of impressive stuff, but I never knew you. You may have been doing stuff, but I don't know who you were doing it for because it sure wasn't me. And I've asked this question of this church before. If Jesus in bodily form walked into this auditorium right now 
And he's walking down the rows, just working the room and saying hi to everyone he recognized. Would you have absolute confidence that when he came to your row, there would be a flash of recognition? And he'd be like, dude, fist bump. Oh, man, great time this morning. I loved it. Thank you for sharing all that with me, man. I I really love hanging out with you. Well, some of us here, like, and you are? I vaguely remember you. There was a little camp back when you were like in sixth grade, 1980-something. I remember you cried a lot, and you made a big, big hoopla over something. I ain't heard from you since. How have you been? Is that what you want to hear if he walks in the room? The central motivation is related to the central experience of being a Christian. It is about knowing Jesus, isn't it? And without that, this will not make very much sense to us. Let me give you the last thing here. And that is that Jesus would be our first authority. It says he is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself would come to have first place in everything. It's so important for us to remember that there is only one head of the church and he is not me. Please don't, I, you would put me in a very bad spot if you ever even for a moment think I'm the head of this church. I am not. I'm a goofy guy who went to Bible school and gets to stand up here and talk to you. I love you very much, but there is only one head of this church and he is Jesus Christ. And I thank God for the elders and deacons of this church who understand that. I've been around a lot of church leaders who gave lip service to that truth. Our leaders are courageous in putting Jesus Christ first. I am so deeply impressed by the men and women he's raised up to lead the church with me. I am astounded at how Christ-centered each of these people are. You should see it as one of the greatest blessings in your life to go to a church where the leaders are not interested in gaining power for themselves, but in making Jesus first place in everything. We should thank God for those people. You know, if you lose your body parts, you can compensate quite capably. You can have a lot of quality of life with all kinds of things missing. I mean, look at this guy. I thought that was photoshopped at first. I couldn't believe anyone can live with that much of their body missing. All he's got is torso on up, and he has this thriving a thriving um, job, basically working with the kids, especially disabled kids, showing them you don't have to let your disability knock you down. You can live even with half your body gone. And so that's an illustration to show you that you can lose all kinds of body parts and still make it in life. But there is one part of your body you simply cannot lose. What part is that, class? Thank you. <laughs> Someone's paying attention in bio class. You can't lose your head and just get a new one grafted on, all right? That's the one body part you lose, and the whole thing dies. Some of you have just statuesque physiques. Some of you just have amazing bodies, specimens. But we cut off your head, and your body's going to be the same as mine, isn't it? No advantage. Minus the head, a body dies. I can't tell you how critical that is for us to keep in mind as a church. Without Jesus Truly at the head of this church as its authority, there is no church. There might be a social club hanging out for a long time together, slowly winding down towards our retirement years, but there will not be a church. Without Jesus as the authority, there is no living body. 
how do I emphasize that enough? I went to church once at a place where the elders had fist fights in the hallway in front of children over the color of carpet. They spiritualized it. One faction wanted blue to, to symbolize the baptismal waters. And one faction wanted red to symbolize the blood of Christ. And they were throwing Bible verses around about why this is the more godly color of carpet. This fight was not about carpet color at all. It's about long-standing historical grudges, power plays, personality differences. It was just a bunch of pig-headed, egotistical people using their, their church leadership to embarrass Christ and to wound others. That's all it was. Do you think for a second Jesus gives a lick about the color of the carpet in a building? Can you imagine what a worthless faith this would be if Jesus is nothing other than an interior decorator in the sky? That he cared about things that trivial? What he was aching over was that some of the, the carpet was red from the blood flowing out of these elders' noses. That broke his heart. That here was a church, his body, and he was clearly decapitated and no longer the head of this place. What hope could there be for the people of God when those who are meant to connect us to the head have severed the head? The one thing I ask you to keep us accountable for, for the rest of the time you're with us, if you ever see us making much of ourselves and less of Jesus, you have permission and must have all boldness to proclaim it out loud and challenge us. Because this church doesn't belong to anybody but Jesus Christ. It's important that the church is referred to throughout the Bible as the bride of Christ. You know, that means a little something. I'm not going to get as excited as I did in Tuba City, but man, you need to be careful how you treat somebody's wife. Are you feeling me, married guys? Can I just walk up to your wife and do whatever I want, say whatever I want, and it's okay with you? Uh-huh. You can say a lot of stuff to anybody else, but you say to my wife, we're going to have some serious problems, you and me. Because you don't mess with my wife. I'm getting passionate again. I got a little overexcited in Tuba City, but man, adultery ticks me off. It's the lowest form of human behavior, if you ask me. If you could completely violate that sacred bond, you are worthless. You're totally lost. And why do you think then that when Jesus wants a word to describe the church, he uses the word bride? He's trying to show you just how precious the church is to him. And we should be always very humble when we talk about the church, when we decide what we're going to do that affects the church. This is his bride, and he is the head of this bride. I'm not that fond of Christian bumper stickers and posters and that kind of thing, those little cute one-liners, but there was one that was in everybody's dorm room in the 80s when I was in college. And it said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Do you guys remember that one? I saw it everywhere. It started playing itself out in my dreams. But it's so true. If he isn't Lord of everything, then he isn't really Lord because that word is a potent word. It means unquestioned dominion. 
exhaustive authority. It means over everything. There is no area of jurisdiction over which Jesus is not permitted to reign as king. This is the beginning point, the starting marker of the Christian faith. It is not the final pinnacle that those who climb Mount Everest as super Christians attain to. It is the starting point, is that Jesus Christ should have the first place in everything. That's my prayer for our church. There's more to be said. I'm not going to say it because I'm running close to that point where I'm going to start losing some of us. I'll wrap up by just saying this. The central foundation of what holds all of us together, what makes the church something different than every other organization in the world, is that Jesus Christ is acknowledged to be God. And that he is given the first place in everything. A lot of us grew up thinking that Savior and Lord was Jesus' last name. Jesus, Savior, and Lord. (laughs) He's Savior, yeah, we love that part. But with that comes the Lordship. And when he is acknowledged as Lord, you will be astounded at what he does through our lives and in our lives. Everything was made for him. And in him, all things are held together. That's my earnest prayer for our church. And if I could just be a little more personal, this last statement here. You know, there was a time in the early years of our church when we were very hungry, when most of us who were building this church together were young, socially um, not much going on, We just needed something to fill up our lives, and we poured our life into God's work. I remember a time when we would just say, hey, somebody's moving. Can we get some volunteers to help move? And we get so many people, we'd have to send some people home. Something seems to have shifted over the years. We've all gotten busier. Our lives have gotten fuller. It's harder to get us engaged in something without lots of advance notice, and I totally appreciate that. But I sense that something else has shifted as well. Because when the call goes out for help, it's often rare that we even get an email back anymore. (laughs) I don't know what's happened, but it used to be 20 guys would help one family move. Now we can't get two guys to help a family move. And I'm curious. I've been very prayerful. This is not me trying to guilt you into anything. I I want you to explore with me what's changing in our church. But I think at least a small part of that is even in the smaller, mundane decisions about how I will use an evening of my life. I think it matters that Jesus Christ truly comes first in everything. I know how I want to live my life. But when I yield to how Jesus wants to live through me, I'll become a blessing. I'll change the world. And I want us to think on that as we go into prayer together. This is a very personal question. Is Jesus Christ first place in everything in your life? Would you bow with me for a moment? last thing I want to do is judge you. In fact, I don't think that I can because I don't know what's really going on with you. But I think you have a pretty good read on your own life. 
There's a lot of ways we can ask ourselves questions about our spiritual condition, but I think this is an important one, and it's the one being given to you this morning. Does Jesus Christ truly have the first place in everything? Does he have priority? Is he the real motivation for everything you do? And I know you know what you want, but does Jesus' authority really come first for you? Here's the great promise as you reflect on that, that if Jesus is given first place, then all things are held together. And at the end of that passage, it says that there will be peace and not strife and turmoil. So let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, you are Lord. And whether we acknowledge it or not, it doesn't change the truth of that. You are the great King of kings. You are Lord of lords. Our lives will hold together when we come to give you the first place in everything. Lord, we just confess that some of us, our lives could really use some holding together right now. And we're feeling pretty lost and confused, out of control. So we ask you, Lord Jesus, to come now, push us aside from the throne, and be firmly seated and have the dominion, the first place in everything, and bring peace to our lives. I pray for this church that we would never, ever be disconnected from the head who is Jesus Christ. No matter how big we get, no matter how much we accomplish for you, let it be our consistent boast that you were always Lord of this church. And in our lives, you reigned as first place. And when we're long forgotten, Lord Jesus, reign over the earth, be famous here we give you the glory we enthrone you Jesus we ask you to come and even as we finish in singing through the music continue moving closer to us and moving us closer to you in Jesus name Amen thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.